the incomparable. Number 342, March 2017. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. We're here this time to talk about a film from the year 2000. It is M. Night Shyamalan. That's right. He's made a lot of movies that people do not like. He's got quite a reputation. He made The Sixth Sense. That was a kind of a phenomenon. His next film was a, uh, a, a, a sort of a secret ode to superheroes, I suppose, uh, although looking back, it's hard to even believe that it's secret. But I guess that's the position you have after you've seen the movie a few times. It's Unbreakable. And joining uh, joining us to talk about Unbreakable on this episode are the following superheroes of podcasting. Moises Chuyan. Hello. Excelsior. Hi, Jason. How are you? It's good to have you here. Dan Morin is also here. Hi. They call me Mr. Class. Oh, do they? <laughs> Nope, nope. No one ever has called me that. All right. Uh, someday, maybe. <laughs> All right, Erica Ensign is here. Hi. Hi. I have a little bit of a cold, so I'm pretty sure I'm not a superhero. Oh, uh, that's true. <laughs> and he wasn't going to be on this episode, but I stood in the middle of a bus station until he bumped into me. It's Justin Michael. Hi. Tell me something, Jason. When you woke up this morning, was it still there? The sadness? <laughs> <laughs> yep, because he knew he was doing this podcast with mm. us tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so where 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 to begin? Should we should we start well, with Jason? Jason, Ivan, Jason, I, Jason, I have oh, an opening statement. Oh, oh my god! It. You beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, just just for historical purposes and and not to uh, not to steal John Syracuse's most signature signature lines, uh, but I, I think we do need a little bit of historical context, which a lot of people for this film would like to uh, would like to make all about. Oh, how the mar- movie was marketed, how the movie was marketed, this, that, and the other. I don't really care about that. What I care about is in the context of comic book movies there are a few historical signposts that people should just adjust their chronometers in their minds to all right not only was this pre 9-11 this was also just after batman and robin and blade those Mm -hmm. are the most recent comic book movies to have come out and it was a full two years before sam raimi's spider-man uh this this was a completely different world of quote-unquote comic book movie than what we face today yeah it was kind of a desert of comic book movies in many ways and 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 i think it's it's fascinating to look at it back now 17 years later as someone deciding to make a movie of this type with certain genre tropes that we're uh very very familiar with one might say too familiar with Mm. um at this point and and look at the notion of grounding, gritty, real-life superheroes in ways that doesn't require them to hit each other over the head with toilets. Interesting reference there. Reference acknowledged. Um, yeah, I, th- I think you make some very good points. It's it's. I was going to say later on, but I'll just say it now. You know, when you've seen 80 different origin story movies, you get a little tired of an origin story. And then I was watching this saying, you know, this is an origin story too, but I, I not told in the same way. And it's not a familiar origin. And it isn't like the third time we've seen Spider-Man's origin in like 10 years. And so it's a little <laughs> bit different. Um, Dan, did you have a opening statement? I before? actually a quick comment, just a, setting my own... Uh, context for seeing this um i i frequently allude to this i think you know to to pick up moises's thro- thread about uh marketing uh i frequently allude to this as i think the my favorite and possibly one of the best movie trailers ever um because there's a movie trailer for this movie that's probably all of a minute and a half long or something like that and it, it gives away absolutely 
nothing about this movie. I mean, basically, it's that scene from the beginning where he's in the hospital, and that's it. And so I was not a – I did not see The Sixth Sense because I was not really like sort of a creepy movie aficionado at that point. Uh, and so I knew basically nothing about this going in. Uh, and to me, it remains one of the great surprises of that era hmm. of movies where I went into a movie really having zero idea what it was about and found myself completely – blown away and uh there are some some choices in here that are, are not 100 percent, but i think you yeah. know overall it was the fact that it 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 took me completely by surprise and so too often i think we all agree that movie trailers seem to give up uh all all too much of these movies um and like you can watch a two and a half minute trailer and it basically it's like i i don't need to see that now uh and so it was uh, refreshing even at that point to see a movie trailer that indeed lived up to the name of a teaser where it gave you just enough to want to go see the movie. And that was about it. You're going to grab on my thread. I'm going to grab on yours. I completely agree. And <laughs> and people would argue that the plot uh, narrative uh, twist or turn toward the end of the movie is the twist and it's part of his whole gimmick. But I feel like his subversion of expectation uh, is is something that, yeah, there's that at the end of the movie um, that you can point to from a structural perspective. But I, I think that the bigger twist is is specifically that in setting it up as this is something that you want to see and not explaining every last little bit of what this movie is going to be, what it is about and leaving that a mystery is the most effective twist uh, in in this uh, in this movie and in this era of his filmmaking. This is a movie about a superhero's origin story that was not marketed as being even in the superhero genre. Um, for people who don't remember, The Sixth Sense was a huge hit, unexpected. It has a huge twist at the end. It's one of those famous movie twists you're not supposed to spoil. Bruce Willis is dead the entire time, by the way, because look what I did there. Yes. I've been dead for this last five years of these podcasts, but nobody talks about that. <laughs> well, we all knew that, Dan. <laughs> Not a twist. So Shyamalan came from nowhere, uh, had this huge hit. So there was there was a lot of pressure on him, a lot of like, what's the, what's the follow-up going to be? You worry about the sophomore slump. How is he going to top himself? All of these things. And this is a funny movie for, for that, because then after this, um, you know, we can, we can debate the various films that he made <laughs> after this. Uh, I think he made, you know, I, yeah, we could debate it. But he certainly Please got... Please go to uh, Unjustly Maligned. You can hear defenses of many of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, he's definitely gotten a reputation. And, and although I will say in the last few years, he's kind of worked his way back to uh, sort of rebuilding his uh, his credibility a little bit at the box office. Keep in mind, and this is, this is a man who engendered so much... Let's just say, man, I, I hesitate to call it hatred, but I've never... I have never been in a movie theater... And seen someone's name get booed before, and I in a saw trailer. that. I mean, in too. a trailer, wow. and oh, yeah. it was it was crazy. Like that is just a, a like a phenomenon that I have never seen since or before, and yeah. that like shows you just how much strong feelings people have about this guy, love him or hate him. You know, especially hate him. It seems, but it's fascinating, <laughs> and, and and it's weird for me coming from perspective of, and I'll put my cards on the table here. I love this movie. I don't think it's perfect, but I really love it. I love it because it was so unexpected. I love it because I do love this exploration of 
of of comic book superhero ideas without you know without it being explicit at least at first and and in a grounded way that you know your Batman and Robins were not at the time and it's actually kind of hard to express love of any movie by M Night Shyamalan because uh, people do. Uh, roll their eyes because he he really has got this uh, you know reputation in in some circles. But I I would I would argue that this is a legitimately good movie, and that's why I decided we were going to talk about it. So thanks for coming on the podcast, everybody. <laughs> I think Shyamalan over overall, you know, despite the bad rap and the and the flawed movies he's made, he still stands out in my mind as a director who makes choices. Um, there's something very deliberate about his filmmaking, and I think that that it, that shows through in a way that if you watch, you know, a ton of different films that come out these days or in the last decade or two, there's a lot of stuff that won't leave an impact on you one way or the other because it feels very bland. It feels as though there have not been any risks taken. It feels as though everything is sort of cookie cutter. And I feel like, again, once, despite all the other things you can say about Shyamalan, he makes distinct choices. He does things for purpose and reason. Um, I think, you know, he every shot is intended to have a, a, uh, a meaning behind it. And he, he comes across as Hitchcockian to me in his best moments. It's not all of his moments, but like that to me is, you know, I think he's one of a very few number of directors, especially working in sort of these pulpy genre films, who really seems to know what he's about and what he's doing. Making choices is is one of the things that that I was really noticing when I rewatched this uh, for the podcast and that the, I respect this movie and I respect him as a director because it was so clear that he was taking care with with all of the shots, with all of the choices that he made. Some of them were not choices that led me to enjoy the movie anymore, but mm. I thought they were good, solid choices. So it's it's kind of this thing where I really respect it and think it is a good film, but don't necessarily want to jump into rewatching it again anytime super soon. Yeah, deliberate is exactly the word to describe his filmmaking. And he he's very deliberate in his pacing. He's very deliberate in his choices, his framing, his cinematography. And he's very deliberate when it comes to crafting the story that he wants to craft, regardless of what else is going on in the cinematic world. You know, like his films are different. And I don't think they're different because he tries to make them different. I think they're different just because he tells the story the way he wants to tell it without much regard to what else is going on. And that really shines through. And that's where a lot of the, the hatred comes from and the, the unhappiness from the audience, because people go to the movies and they expect certain things and he's not afraid to subvert those expectations. And some people love it and some people don't. All right, let's dive into the plot, and then we, you guys will, I'm sure, all stop me when you want to say something, because that's what happens <laughs> on this podcast. It's sort of our thing now when I go through the plot, but uh, I think that's a good place to start, is just kind of walk through the plot and see what uh, pops out at us. When I went to see this movie for the first time, and the text starts popping up on the screen and talking about comic books, I was like, what the hell is this movie? <laughs> you're, you're, you're good to point that out, Dan, that this is th- this movie starts with uh, several lines of text talking about comic books and how many comic books are sold and it is kind of a funny moment this is why sometimes we'll get to the end when at the end but um sometimes when i hear people say like oh i can't believe what happens at the end and all that it's like i watch this movie now and i think 
It's all it's so obvious. there. <laughs> it's all there. I, I from feel the like, start. in fact, you could have yeah. done you could have done without the comic book thing. And I remember watching this with a friend of yeah. mine who was really into comics at the time, and he was like, he felt I don't want to say exactly like he felt it was appropriative, but he was like, oh yeah, it's just someone else trying to prove how comics are cool. And uh, um, it seems it just seems a little forced. And maybe I don't know if this was a choice on his part or again a choice on someone else's part. It's like you you need to justify why you're making a movie about comic books. You know what Shemelon is trying to do here is is he's posing a little puzzle for the audience, right? Which is what does this movie that I'm about to show you have to do with comic books? Like, and then it's almost like he just plants it and like now you can forget about it. Which I did. (laughs) The next scene is also like, you could forget about it, and then you were reminded of it later. And I think that's kind of interesting that he's like, I'm just going to leave this here, pay no attention. And, uh, you know, but then when you watch it again, you're like, oh, yeah, he's laying it all out there. You just, you you may not know what to do with it, but you're laying it all out there. And likewise, when we see the scene of a baby being born in a department store in Philadelphia in 1961, um, that, you know, we leave that for a long time before we finally go back and there's another flashback and we're like oh yeah the baby at the beginning right because it's it's uh being deliberate with it the uh the the scene where elijah price is born in the department store um is uh a, a beginning i mean the director's presence is felt throughout this film and this is a, a scene where it's absolutely felt uh there's a mirror there are people uh there's a woman on the floor who's just given birth to this baby who's crying there are people coming in that are behind us we are seeing them through the mirror at various points we also uh the camera moves and shifts the perspective so you look back at them and then back in the mirror uh it's a really interesting uh, scene of this baby who uh, the doctor comes and asks if ever, anybody has dropped the baby because the baby has many broken bones and that's why it's crying. The look on Eamon Walker's face in that delivery is also fascinating because it's there's a, the horror on his face to a certain extent is just really disconcerting. And again, I remember watching that for the first time and and still trying to figure out what kind of movie this was and wondering if there's yeah. like, is it disfigured? Like, what is what is happening? <laughs> and I didn't realize in this time watching it again, I think I got a different a slightly different spin on it because there's almost a like there's almost a racial overtone on it. It is the 60s. They call for a black doctor for him. Right. right? They call for a black doctor. And mm-hmm. the way he looks at the white women like, did you did you drop the baby? Like, you know, is it's there is a charged bit of it there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the mirror shot that you point out, which when the first several times that we see this character, he's always in reflection. And of course, in my notes, this is like, oh, yeah, nice use of the mirror. And then after that, it goes, it's glass, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is intentional, right? Like oh, every yeah. time you see yeah. him, it's oh, in yeah. a reflection of glass. Again, he's making choices. They're maybe a little ham fisted in retrospect, but you don't see them going in. I want to take a brief break to remind you about how you can support this podcast. This is the time of year when we do this. It's by becoming a member of The Incomparable. You can sign up for a monthly or annual pledge and support this podcast directly. Here's what you do. Go to theincomparable.com slash members and sign up. You'll be asked to pick the shows on the network you'd like to support. If you just check the box for The Incomparable, your entire contribution will come to the Mothership podcast here. 
after a few fees are taken out. If you listen to other podcasts on the Incomparable Network, that's great too. Check their boxes and your contribution is shared equally by all the different shows that you want to support. Now, as a thank you for becoming a member, you will receive a bunch of extras, including a podcast feed with bonus audio, a live bootleg feed of the Incomparable Sessions as we record them. As soon as we're done recording a live episode, it gets uploaded to the bootleg feed. It's unedited, but it's immediate. You don't have to wait two months for me to finally edit that episode and put it out. There's also a members-only Slack group, so you can go in and chat with your fellow listeners about pretty much anything. And since this is our pledge season, this month, many of the shows on the network will be posting bonus episodes just for members in that bonus feed. Our bonus episode just dropped. It's a full-length, screen-specific commentary track for Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's right. You play Raiders, and you play our podcast, and you listen as we talk, you can watch the movie, and it's like you're listening to us while watching a movie. It's like we're in your living room. That's what it's like. It's like me and Dan Morin and John Syracuse and David Lore and Monty Ashley are sitting with you on your couch watching Raiders of the Lost Ark and making comments and jokes. And John Syracuse may so- say something at some point about snake farts, but I'm going to leave that to you as a member, to discover exactly what he says. There are contribution levels for incomparable memberships at $5, 10 and $20 a month. Annual equivalents are also available if you want to just pay once and then not worry about it for the rest of the year. And if you're already a member, thank you for being a member. It's easy to increase your pledge to a higher level. And if you go to a higher level of donation, you get some special goodies in return. So if you'd like to support us, go to theincomparable.com slash members to sign up. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And if you'd like to support us, thank you in advance for becoming a member. I hadn't seen this for years. And what the very first thing I wrote down in my notes after the first couple of scenes was very unsettling in the beginning. And, you know, it going back to those title cards with, with the, the text about the comics, it's like, okay, well, we're talking about comic books. That's a fairly lighthearted subject. And then we go <laughs> into the scene with the baby who's got broken bones. And it's like, Wow. And like, like you said, like, that's a very emotionally charged scene. You can feel the tension in that room. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we went from comic books to this. And like, by the time the, that scene ends, I forgot the, the comic text, like it's gone. Like, and then we go to the train and on the train, he's sitting there and, you know, this very awkward, uncomfortable feeling. And it's just like, like a roller coaster of emotions, it, it doesn't let you get your footing at all. And I think that's very intentional. And I, I think it helps to sweep you off of wherever you are coming into the movie and getting you ready for like whatever he's going to throw at you next. Cause it, it almost puts you on the defensive in a good way. I, I, I agree. And I think something that is present throughout the whole movie and that we see here in, in both the, the way that we, we get these first, two transitions at the very beginning of the movie, as well as the framing throughout, which mm-hmm. oh, some people would consider, I mean, the cinematography choices that are made are, oh, this is weird. This is strange. Oh, why are <laughs> we doing the, the bobbing back and forth perspective of a little girl? The the thing I found uh, most fascinating about that, looking back at it, it is really some of the most comics inspired uh, panel layout design that I've yep. seen cinematically to this date. And there are a ton of billion dollar comic book movies that have been made that don't have the kind of really arresting visuals that this does in the first two micro scenes. And the the big thing about comic storytelling that, you know, you, you read any of the different books that have been made uh, by people who really know their stuff when it comes to comic storytelling is that each page ends on a cliffhanger. 
And that's the way that he structures the scenes where we get a little bit of information, but we're left just off kilter enough and wanting to propel forward just relentlessly throughout the movie. You know, there, there are people who have issues with the pacing. I think they can go jump off a bridge because uh, that that might be a more useful. <laughs> they might fly. Uh, they use might of their be time. superheroes. Oh, yeah, they, they could be. They could be because this movie taught me that everybody should be a superhero. Uh, they could be. You just got to think about it a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, that th- that particular uh, bit of, uh, I guess you would say, danger of being a little bit off kilter, just in the amount of information that you get. It, it doesn't feel artificially done to uh, to a frustrating level, but it's enough that you you don't feel like all the cards are being held by somebody else and you're being fooled. And, um, you know, the, the kinds of the kinds of dynamics that you that you see in suspense or thriller movies that end up making you go, oh, come on, or the stuff that a lot of people came to associate a lot of his later work with, which is, oh, all right, fine. OK, great. You get me once or twice, but on the third time, I'm done with you. There are a lot of things in here as we go through that we'll, we'll probably talk about how they are uncomic book movie like in in the way in the choices that are made in the things we don't see. There are basically I mean, I know there are special effects that you don't see, but there are basically no special effects in this movie. Um that's an interesting choice. Some choices for spectacular action or, you know, at least spectacle scenes are are avoided. They're not shown, like the train crash. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of interesting decisions um, that are, that are made that make this feel like a very different kind of movie. And the deliberate, the slow build, like here we get we get a flashback, and we get the title card, we get a flashback, and then we get the train scene, which is Bruce Willis is on a train, and he's looking out the window, and you know, and a, a woman sits down next to him, and they have a conversation. He takes off his wedding ring, which is a. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you gotta you gotta be paying attention. But he takes off his wedding ring, slides it off. We don't that we're immediately put on the the wrong foot with him. Like, but Will, Bruce Willis is the star of this movie, and the first thing he does, you know, is implying <laughs> that he's that he's cheating on his wife, and and he uh, he tries to have a conversation with, and then pick up the young sports agent who sits down next to him, and that gets really painful and awkward, and then she leaves, and also he's being kind of watched from the row in front of him by a a, a kid. Uh, sort of upside down at one point. And, and it, not for the last time upside down. That's also a trope that gets repeated yep. several times. In but here. we get to see the whole awkward conversation that he has with the sports agent. And uh, and then he puts his wedding ring back on. And, the, you know, then the scene ends with him looking out the window and the train starts honking its horn. Uh, you know, and uh, and the the noise we we watch this, and I've got the five point one audio system, and there is a lot of really great surround and subwoofer in this movie. Again, yeah, with is. care, it builds and is loud, and the train gets louder and louder and louder as we're getting to that moment where it's going to crash, and then hard cut silence, and it's a uh, it's pretty spectacular. Yeah, there's there's two things that I wanted to call out with this scene. And one of them is right in the beginning, right when it opens with, with Bruce, Bruce Willis, like putting his head against the window, watching the world go by where, where it just opens. The look on his face tells you so much about his character. Just just looking out that window. And that is like the the first of many little 
moments throughout the movie that just have like a wealth of character building in a single scene or a single sequence. And it's just, it's wonderful. And then the second thing was, was again, that, that kid in the front, like they, they show the kid, you know, initially, and then we, we go to her and his conversation with, with the lady that he's trying to pick up. And then we go back to the kid. And I thought that was a wonderful way to bookend that sequence. This is almost a short movie in and of itself about a guy failing to pick up a lady. (laughs) And, um, there's so much good thing packed in here from the body language. I just the scene where she where the bit where she says I'm married and sort of like she crosses her arms across her chest. Everything gets super awkward all of a sudden. There's foreshadowing when she talks about the quarterback at the college, right? He's going to be a god and as we later realize this is, you know, sort of evidence of his own his own road not taken. Right. Plus we um, see that guy later, which is a really right, yes, sad, indeed. nice touch. Twice, twice actually, I believe. Yeah. He sees him playing football and then he sees him with the kids. Right. Um, and the fear of water is brought up very early when he talks about not being able to be a synchronized swimmer. Right. Um, like all of this is just all packed in. And like, you know, like Justin said, like it's so economical and yet accomplishes so many things in the, in such a short little time. And it's very, very realistic. I mean, if you have ever, if a guy has ever sat down next to you and tried to pick you up, not sure if that's happened, but it has to me. And yeah, that is, that is exactly the kind of awkward that it feels like. Yeah. And another thing about this scene is the, you know, the sequence from the camera moving left and right from the seat in front. Right. We're, we're voyeurs here. We are, we are watching this all happen between the, it's the crack between the two seats of the row, of the row ahead is how Mm -hmm. we see the whole thing. The other thing that the, the camera work here accomplishes, you know, in, in addition to the sense of voyeurism is the fact that you only see one character at a time. You either see Bruce or you see her and, through that you know through that framing he's able to direct the audience the audience's focus exactly where he wants it mm-hmm. like if he wants you to see her body language when he's saying something he he does that but it's not forced and it's not something you notice when you're watching the scene it's just it's so well done from top to bottom like dan like you said it's like a movie in a scene right here and it, i just i love it to do like like justin i had not watched this movie in years although i've seen it several times and what amazed me about it was how much shots stuck with me there are just images and scenes and like composition shots that have stuck that i immediately recognize immediately remembered that even though I've, i haven't seen this movie in a decade probably like it was amazing how much of that stuck with me, and it's a, it's a testament to the cinematography and the direction here is just like these again the choices made they stick with you because they are deliberate and they are they are very measured in the way that they accomplish you know like try to accomplish a specific message through not only what's being done on screen but how it's being shown. He uses a bunch of old cinema techniques, stuff that you would see in Hitchcock, that are things that things things people uh, try to emulate these days from those you know old masters, as it were, tend to be the more gimmicky stuff and not the direct uh, uh, directed attention uh, filmmaking, as, as Justin alluded to. So the train crash happens off screen because our our next scene is actually a boy upside down. <laughs> watching mm-hmm. a tv watching the tv and this is this is we learn this is bruce willis who is david dunn this is his son he's watching tv 
he flips around. We get a little Powerpuff Girls happen in the middle there. And then we end up with uh, the scene of a terrible uh, train derailment. And then he turns back around um, right side up and looks at this and and uh, goes over to the calendar in the other room to see the, the sticky note that says that that's his dad's train. And then the next scene after that is a scene in the hospital where Bruce Willis is, he sits up and in the foreground, they're working on a patient. And if you're focused on Bruce Willis in the background, Such by the way, shot. you will you will yeah. miss the blood the begin blood. to spread oh, across that, per, Such that patient. Such a good shot. So there's a lot, ha- a lot so happening at the creepy. beginning of this movie. And, and, and in the background, the conversation is happening between Bruce Willis and a doctor uh, about the fact that uh, he's trying to figure out, like, were you sitting in a special place, you know, that, that this happened? And Bruce Willis doesn't really understand what's going on. I get the, I get the sense from this that he's been unconscious until mm-hmm. this point. Um, but yeah. then, you know, he's about to be, after this guy dies, basically, he's about to be the last survivor of a train crash. And he doesn't have a, he doesn't have a scratch on him. This scene is framed perfectly. It's shot perfectly. That slow zoom plus the blood plus like the the audio work like it's it's all just spot on and let's i mean let's couple this scene with the immediate following scene which is also oh, yes. amazing which is it's all Everyone's the people staring. all the people waiting at the hospital for word about their loved ones we know and we i think we maybe are hearing the last words of the doctor as that scene begins which is we know everybody else on the train died which means everybody waiting at the hospital is waiting in vain their loved ones are dead and he is walking out of there with his kind of messed up clothes but he's just walking out without the 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 scratch on him and then you know his his son sees him and runs to him and there's a and, nice pan shot like sort of a mm-hmm. dolly shot around him and just the looks on everyone's faces in that scene are it's almost chilling, I right. think. And what like are they the thinking? They're looking at him. What yeah, are the, exactly. I always think, what are they thinking? Are they thinking, well, if if this guy survived, maybe somebody else did? Are they are they angry at him because they he survived? They look like they're angry at him to me. Mm-hmm. It always looks like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The thing that I like about this scene is, is as they're walking out of the hospital, first you get the kid um, putting his parents' hands yeah. in, in each oh, other. Man. So like you, oh, you see immediately what's going on. And then as they're walking, they they drop the hand. So I'm like, oh, this, you know, the, the context of the first scene of him taking his, his wedding ring off and putting it in his pocket, it makes so much more sense now. Like, okay, he's not necessarily the complete slime ball that I maybe thought he was in that yeah. earlier scene. They are having trouble. Maybe they're even separated. Like, I wasn't exactly sure what was, what was going on with that. And it's just economy, once again, economy and deliberateness of, of, of the, the framing of the shots. You know so much more about what is going on now, the, the information that's been given in such a tight amount of time is, is pretty fantastic yeah we're, we're what like five minutes into the movie yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and we uh, yeah. like we have all of this information and we're just barely into it it's very much like an issue of a comic book and you get a gigantic amount of information thrown into your mind in six frames so i could see one of the criticisms of this film being that it that it does it is deliberate and you could say that the pacing is is slow in some ways i think mm-hmm. what Shyamalan is doing here is downloading us enough that we are willing to take it slow 
as the as the discovery happens. I think that's what at least what he's trying to do because we have just spent a lot of time talking about the first maybe five minutes, the first three or four scenes of this film. But I think that's what he's doing, yeah. right? He's saying, okay, I'm going to give you everything you need to know. I'm going to be economical about it, and then you're going to be you're going to be interested enough to follow me from here. Yeah, and it almost worked. <laughs> I, I was I was really interested in all of this. It's just I think, and actually I might as well talk here about another one of the deliberate choices, which which you have seen at this point, and that is the the color palette of this film and the yes. grading is very very deliberately just sort of dull, and and the pacing also sort of feels deliberate and I, I don't want to say dull on the on the pacing because that's that's not quite right but it is it is it is showing you that this is this is an ordinary guy this is a schlub he is he's just a dude and and I feel like these first few scenes have really have really built that very well and I was interested but as we go on it's like yep he he continues to be just an ordinary guy for quite a long time and I just don't care about him that much that's that's I agree I, I think I think yeah you I, I think you could argue that the that it goes a little too long um, in that interim where he's sort of unclear and that they do a couple of things you know he has a couple of conversations with Samuel Jackson and it's like I don't know if you really needed them but um, but I think it is interesting here you mentioned the color palette and I want to get back to that but the color palette is dull except when it's not and and that's an interesting yep. choice that he makes mm-hmm. it's like the color palette is is faded so that he can have certain bursts of color Pops. to represent yeah. specific <laughs> things. Well, and and well, and it, Samuel Jackson's people, purple people wearing yep. things. Yep. Yeah. The, the well, the people that he bumps into and exactly you know, it accentuates the red in their coat or the green in their shirt. But everything or, else is cream and white and gray yeah. and well, and the use of color in general too. I mean, because not only um, Samuel Jackson's use of purple, but the fact that David mostly wears green. Uh, in, both in his sort of security yes. uniform as well as he's wearing a green shirt at the beginning. Um, you know, obviously everything is chosen. And those are, again, superhero tropes, right? Like even when you have those superheroes where even when they're in their civvies, they're always wearing the color sure. of their superhero outfit, right? Like it's a it's a little key, a little cheat sheet for you. So you get that. Let's um, not forget that his initials are, are uh, you know, he's he's are, David Dunn. He's a doubled, DD. Yes. He's a superhero doubled initial person too. Yep. Um, and also, I want to draw attention here, um, although it's, uh, you know, sort of throughout um, the music, uh, James Newton Howard's score for this is fantastic. I love this score. Mm-hmm. Really, it's really great. good. For me, I mean, people people have issues with the pacing, and I, I think that's perfectly fine. But something that that at the time I liked was that it wasn't trying to tell the pace of somebody else's version of one of these types of stories. I really dug hanging out with sad Superman for a long while without a bunch of special effects or buildings exploding. I'm a fan of movies that are kind of a slow burn like this. And I think it really, because it takes to heart that idea of like, what if there really was a superhero in our world? How would that go? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, it would take you a long time to be willing to accept <laughs> that you might be a superhero, yeah. right? Like, yep. you would not believe that. You would think that dude is crazy. And so, I, you know, going down that route and not just being like having it turn into a superhero movie. And I feel like there are movies, the movie that comes to mind, which my most frustration with this uh, was... um kick-ass which is a movie that is like hey what if you like what if you were superheroes in real life and then it just buys into its own hype which i feel like this movie never quite does it it sort of keeps it at a distance um because it's trying to ground it in our world even if parts of it are unbelievable 
while the slow burn here doesn't work for me so much, I still applaud it because I actually I do like a slow burn. It's just I, I tend to be a very character centric viewer. So if there are characters that I'm invested in during a slow burn, I am on board and I love it. In this case, just the, the sheer ordinariness of, of this person is integral to the story and because he's so ordinary i didn't really like him that much (laughs) so so that's that's the only reason i wasn't on board so this is one of those choices that he made to to pace it and color it this way that i think is fantastic from a movie making standpoint i think it makes it a very good film it just makes it a film that i'm less interested in in watching like i i am having more fun talking about it with you guys (laughs) than i was watching this part of the film well well this part of the film i mean it's not it's it it is yeah it's Hey, I only watch. I love this movie, and I only watch it every five years or so. It's not one of yeah. those ones I'll mm-hmm. pop on on any rainy day that that comes along. So I wanted to mention the next scene, and 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 this is where the story really. I mean, well, the plot summary really starts to move, Erica, <laughs> because there's not a lot that happens. But um, but if you couple the scene where there is the uh, the memorial service for the victims of the crash with the scene as he's walking out of the hospital, what I thought about during all of that and the memorial scene, you know, it serves a purpose at the end because he finds a note stuck under his windshield. But um, I... I think in terms of superhero origins, you know how Peter Parker didn't save, didn't stop the robber and he killed his Uncle Ben and great power comes great responsibility. Part of what's going on here, I feel like in these two scenes is a classic superhero thing, which is why were you the only one to survive? What's what makes you special? Are you meant to do something more? Do you need to prove that it was, you know, that that you being saved was right and that you need to you need to be worth worthy of that? And then it is hammered home again by the fact that, you know, he goes to this. I mean, he goes to this thing and he's the only survivor and they're in the memorial service for all the people who died. Um, And then he comes Although I did wonder where he parked, he must park in weird locations because there's like the the whole city is mourning the people at that uh, of the train wreck and there's a whole memorial service. And yet his truck is parked in a completely empty parking lot. So I guess maybe he was avoiding the media. I don't know. (laughs) The memorial service is interesting, too, is it because I was paying more attention to it this time and pay attention to the what they say about the people who died. You've got like a leukemia researcher, a third grade teacher, there's oh, yeah. like a social worker. Yeah. Who like, are you? These are David all Dunn. good people, right? Like that's that's fascinating to me. And right, who are you? Why are why did you get saved and all these good people? Notice they don't mention like, oh, the sports agent who was going to yeah. make a lot of money <laughs> off the quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> she does not get a mention. Yeah, but it it sure distances all of them from well, Renacop, you're not exactly going to cure cancer, are you? Yeah, yeah, seriously. So I like I like that because it it just it feels in hindsight, especially knowing what this movie is actually doing here, it feels very much like this is one of his motivators. Is who am I going to be? You know, I survived this and nobody else did. What what am I going to do to live up to that? Just in the back, it doesn't. The movie doesn't say that, but that's how that's the feeling I get from these two scenes. He gets though a note under his windshield from Elijah Price. We find out uh, that is uh, asking him the question of uh, if he's ever been sick in his life, and so it's like prompting him even more. Like, uh, is this not? Were you not just lucky? Maybe this is a a bigger issue here. Two two things I love about the note are the one. This is the first like really purple thing like the the the, in, the inside of that envelope is more. like this vibrant yeah it's like this vibrant purple and it's like 
it stands out, you know, because, you know, Erica, like you said, the mm-hmm. the rest of the movie is so muted when it comes to colors. And it's like, wow, that's that's purple in there. And then the other thing is that the content of the note asks about being sick. It doesn't ask about being injured. It asks about being sick. So it starts to hint at the dimension of his powers and his abilities and his differences. And it's like it's not just that he can't get hurt. It's like there's more to it than this. And I love that. The only thing that I don't like about the note is it's it's where the movie breaks a little bit for me. I mean, I get that he's an ordinary guy, but the idea that he didn't know if he yeah. had ever been sick, thats that strains my credulity a little bit. I mean, I guess he must have been an only child because he didn't have his parents comparing, you know, his number of sick days with, with anybody else's. But, you know, not knowing if you've ever taken a sick day in the however many years he's he's worked there and and in your entire life, I just... Ooh, a little too far for me. I, I, I'm kind of okay with it because I think it is that idea of like you don't notice these things sometimes if you're not really paying attention to it. Like if I, you know, and I think it really depends. Like there are definitely people I know who can give you the chronicle of like every time they've been <laughs> ill over the last couple of years. And then I know people and, and I follow in this category mostly is like, yeah, I can think of incidents where I was legitimately sick. But, you know, I don't I certainly don't think about all the days when I wasn't sick. And so See, I, th- and I feel like I know a lot of people who are the other way around. Like, oh, I never sure, get sick. Yeah, yeah I. I I don't know, but it works for me because I feel like it is this idea as it, as he starts to explore that and he's realizing like, yeah, do I really not? Like if you're just sort of out of it and like kind of occupied with other things and we know he's had this sort of malaise, right? Like almost. That's true. That is true. Of him just being like somewhat depressed, if anything. Okay, you've made it better. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Woo! At some point in here, we see uh, our other flashback with Elijah, which is when he's a, a, a little boy and he's looking out the window and his mom basically coaxes him outside by saying, I put a present on the bench across the street and it's a comic book. And I bought a lot of these comic books. And every time you go outside, you can have a comic book. So we see the root of Elijah's interest in comics, which is tied with his mother trying to get him out of the house because he just doesn't want to go outside because he's afraid of the world because he's afraid the world is going to hurt him. My, my, my suspense is, wait, wait, who puts a present on a <laughs> bench across the street. I, I have had, I have had for, for this too. <laughs> they also address it immediately, which is that she put it there on purpose, right? Like, you know, you and he says, what if someone's going to take it? And she says, well, you better get out there, right? Yeah. Like, so I think she gave somebody a heads up out there saying, watch this and yep. make sure nobody takes it until my kid comes and gets yeah, it. And it's right? fine. It doesn't really <laughs> bother me because she says immediately, like, you better go mm-hmm. get it, right? Like, it's not just the, this is a weird scene. <laughs> this is also a movie where a guy who looks like Bruce Willis bench presses 500 pounds. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Well, the th- my thing about it is that uh, she is the mother of a kid who is is hurt a lot, and and I, I have friends who have who have children who are 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 fragile in some ways, and those moms get tough. So my thought is that when she put it out there, like she looked at all those other kids and like just gave them the look, yep. and they were like, "Whoa, we're not," <laughs> or, or, or gave it. them a mission of nobody touches yeah. this. Yeah, you understand? <laughs> Don't you dare. Yeah, exactly. Well, I like right. it, it. Once again, this is an intro with a mirror shot, right? He's looking at the TV, which is both a callback to the birth scene at the very beginning and to um, Bruce Willis's son watching the TV in the first shot that we get of him. Um, and so it's really, again, once again, it's glass! <laughs> in the scene with the mom giving him the comic book, she has the line, they say this one has a surprise. Oh, ending. yes. 
that oh, is right. too important. Um, and it's also a, one, another reversal shot where the comic book is upside down. Yes, and it follows course, him around as he turns it around and then continues around until it's right side <laughs> up. He's the villain, so it's upside down and inverted, right? Like, that makes yeah. perfect sense. That, I think that shot is a little bit too showy. It's a little too myself. too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a sucker for that because, like, that is a perfect metaphor for the point at which his life turns around. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, yeah. All right. yes. Awesome. Yep. I mean, the, the the surprise ending thing is a little on the nose when you're watching this <laughs> and have already seen it. But like, yeah, again, yeah. yeah. And there is a surprise twist at the end. It, it is the thing that kicks me because like, I'm like, how did I watch this movie before and not <laughs> see this coming? What, yep. what kind of idiot am I? So then we, we do see, they do meet in the present day. Elijah runs this art gallery. There's a funny scene where a guy is going to buy this uh, fine piece of art that's been described by Elijah about all the reasons, the, the way that the, the way the hero is depicted, the way the villain is depicted. And the guy says, oh, my four-year-old kid is going to love it. And he's like, nope, nope, out of the store. Somebody's wasting somebody else's time out, which is a, a great scene, actually. And then Bruce Willis arrives. So Bruce Willis and his son come in. And they have a conversation with Samuel Jackson where he has a, a, a long bit of dialogue about the history of kind of comic art. He is explaining what, well, again, a little bit on the nose. He's got hieroglyphics behind him as he's explaining that, <laughs> that illustrations go back to the days of the Egyptian hieroglyphics. I'm like, okay. I got it. I got it, movie. Well, I'm glad they didn't have him stroking a cat yeah. in a tall <laughs> leatherback chair. There is a... there. A, and he says, you know, there's people and, and he's, he begins to give his thesis about how like people are extraordinary and maybe maybe you were extraordinary. And and I've been looking for people like you. And uh, and he gets to do, do his whole download. And Bruce Willis's response is, don't don't uh, drink any more of that water, son. Uh, you might want to th- throw that water out because he's like, oh, this is a crazy person. That's his first uh, take on Elijah is this is a crazy person. We need to get out of here. Yeah, this is the single the single clumsiest scene for me in the whole movie for two reasons. One is like the whole like comic book as history of people who have powers being marketed and stuff like comics aren't that ancient, you know, like, like comic books are just, they're not that old, you know, and they have like well-documented origins and it's like, that's not what this is, but he has a key is potentially a crazy person. So yep. that kind of gets a pass. But then like the way Bruce Willis reacts with the don't drink the water and then they get up to leave. And he's like, it's very clear at this point that, that his character, David feels that Elijah is a crazy person. And then the scene ends with Elijah asking, what kind of work do you do? And then David tells Elijah, the the person he thinks is completely crazy, oh, here's my job at the place where I work. Like, <laughs> it's like, what are you, what? <laughs> He's weirdly polite to a lot of people. Yeah. I think he realizes, whoa, 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 I went, I went way too fast. I almost tipped my hand a bit too far. Um, you know, I, I just about scared this guy off. And he visibly, in the next interaction that he has with David, dials it back a bit <laughs> where he he goes a bit more open-ended with him and lets lets David do more of the mental answering of the questions that he's 
that he's asking than answering his own questions as he's asking them, which is kind yeah. of what he does. In calm this. down, self. Calm down. You blew it that time. Calm down. I almost down. messed it up with this guy. I almost messed it up with this guy. I don't, I don't want him to run away. So I, I should mention a couple things happened that I skipped over. Uh, he does find out that he's never taken a sick day and he gets a raise, which I think is really nice. Um, we mm-hmm. also see him at his place of work and there is a fantastic shot I just want to mention, which is he's wearing his poncho standing in the tunnel watching the football team practice and could not look more like Batman in that shot. (laughs) It is an amazing shot. He is just like hood and a cape, you know, you Um, you put the, you put the ears on him. He looks like Batman. And if you look at him face forward and see the green in the cloak, he looks like the specter, but nobody knows who the specter is and nobody cares about the (laughs) specter. That's true. Uh, Also, there are a couple scenes, including one that happens right after the scene at the, in the gallery where uh, he's at, where, where Bruce Willis is at home with uh, Robin Wright, uh, who is his estranged wife. Uh, he goes through some old uh, clippings, including his football career and the the, the uh, crash. But then we get, th- this is where we get the scene where she basically, um, we're, tr- we're still figuring out exactly what state their relationship is in. And this is the scene where she asks, since we've been separated, have you been with anybody else? And he says no. And she kind of breaks down at that point. So you can see now you're getting more of the outline here of, of the fragile nature of this relationship and you know are you know they're they're not in the same room but they're under the same roof and and uh are the is it over or is it not over and they're they're not clear and we get another scene of that we get a, a couple of scenes where we're slowly putting together kind of some we never get all but some of the details of uh their estrangement that's an interesting shot because Bruce Willis is entirely from behind and the entire camera is on Robin Wright for that entire scene, which is powerful because it's like an unflinching gaze, right? And that's it's weird because we don't see him, his reaction to that, and this is all sort of ties into his character who is just kind of sleepwalking through life, right? Like that's the whole thing yep. we're getting from him in this first half of the movie is that he is just not, he is not in it. He is not engaged. He is not awake. For whatever reason, he is just not in this. And then the other thing that I want to note was that we had like almost a very literal Chekhov's gun scene where he takes well. the gun out of the closet <laughs> and is like, yep, my gun's still there. And do like, I have yeah. Chekhov's gun? I do. All right. I Put do. Away. <laughs> Thanks, Chekhov. I mean, I assume it's because he's just had this really weird interaction with a crazy dude who seems to be too into him. Um, but it is a little, it's a little, it's an odd scene, but it is clearly there to set up something we'll yeah. discuss later. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing about the closet scene that struck me as like, that's another like blatant example of comic book framing, you know, with the top down angle, like yeah. m- most movies would have shot that just through the, through the open closet door, you know, as a simple side angle, but we are above the ceiling in that shot. Yeah. We are above the ceiling. He's, he's literally boxed in by the closet. Like you can imagine reading the comic that's in and the, the frame is the closet itself. And it's just like, for anyone who reads comics, they notice that, but for anyone else who doesn't read comics watching the movie, it's like, Oh, that's an interesting choice of framing. It's not, it's not like just thrown in your face and, and over the top. It's just so well done. And so like interlaced throughout the movie so well that it's just like, Oh, that's so nice. Next up. Also, we are at the stadium and uh, Elijah comes uh, to talk to, to talk to David again. 
um, and we get to see David at work. And one of the things we see here is our first hint that perhaps he's not just unbreakable, but has other abilities, which I, I watching this movie, it's one of those things of like, whoa, like, wait a second. There's a whole other dimension happening here where he gets the sense. First off, it's very it's it's very subtly done here where he basically shows off that he thinks that that guy uh, in the line might have a gun. And so he says, start the pat downs and they start the pat downs and he tells Elijah, yeah, he'll just get out of the line if he's got something. And he totally does does uh get out of the line and so it's like a nice shot that holds on him and you're like is he gonna get out of line is he gonna get out of line yeah and he finally does and there's this conversation about like he got did you get an image uh of of it and it's a silver gun with a with a black grip right and and uh and elijah ends up uh pursuing him down into the subway falling breaking many bones but seeing as he's laying upside down at the bottom of the steps, he sees the guy jump the turnstiles because this guy also is a fair cheat. Damn this guy, he's evil. <laughs> uh, and sees that he has the same gun that uh, David thought he saw flashed on basically without actually ever seeing, which is uh, confirmation that David has even more uh, powers than we thought. And that's this block in the, in the, in the stadium. I love the creepy Cadillac. Which yeah. looks like once again is like a super villain car because it's got all the padding <laughs> on the inside. And again, I was like, "How did I not notice this?" Um, the other thing that really got me was that the uh, callback in a certain way. He goes to follow this guy uh, ac- across the street and down the subway, and I thought to myself, "The present is across the street. He is like uh, the yeah. same thing with him chasing down this." you know, like whatever this means to him, right? He has to go, he has to thwart the stairs. And of course, when he falls to the bottom of the stairs and sees the guy jump the turnstile, he's upside down. Yeah, each time he's chasing the next chapter of his life. Also, by the way, in our continuing story of one of the themes of this movie being um, easy parking, uh, he's he's next to a stadium at a football game. And his car is he just like a handicap. He has a handicap. I suppose that's right? true. I just he. It's not a problem to park next. Parking next to a football stadium during a football game is not easy to do. But Elijah manages it. I, I wonder. The one thing in this scene that strikes me as maybe a little over the top is the cane shattering. Oh, I love um, the cane shattering. It's a no, great image. I it is an that. awesome image. But I also wonder why do you have a glass cane unless you're a supervillain named Mr. Mr. Glass? glass. <laughs> well, yeah, because he's named Mr. Glass, and this is a comic book movie, yes. and uh, yes. Bruce Willis bench presses 500 pounds. <laughs> Thank you, Moses. You brought me back down to reality. Yeah. That's okay. Thank you. I needed that. Or whatever this is. Yeah. It only takes 500 pounds. <laughs> the other thing is when he's crossing the street there, like the wind like makes that flap of his coat oh, go yeah, across and you see that lining yes. that again that vibrant purple yeah so good so next good. up we have the scene where Bruce Willis does bench press 500 pounds and we learn yet another dimension of his character not only is he not only does he have sort of a spidey sense and is unbreakable but he he is super strong but before that scene starts we get a scene outside where he sees his son and is play, he's playing football which his mom is going to be upset about so we're laying the groundwork there about the fact that that uh, she Robin Wright had a problem with uh, football and perhaps that went into his uh, car crash there but we do see the cornerback who is uh, going to be a god down on the field playing with mm-hmm. the kids, which is a callback. And it's sort of a sad moment of like, oh, yeah, that agent who died. Um, and mm-hmm. and uh, also, I love this scene because at the very end of it, what the kid says I'm is, all right, guys, I can't dad. play anymore. I got to go uh, work out with my dad. It's just adorable. Uh, and then he puts his hand on his back. 
as they walk away, <laughs> yeah. which is just, oh, it's so, it's, there's something about that that is so, just hits you right in the feels. He's just showing off that his, yep. he loves his dad. The thing, the thing that I love about the, the bench pressing 500 pounds is one of the complaints that you could make about this movie if it was handled more poorly is that how would this guy not know that he can lift so much, like he, that he's that strong. But it, it's very clear that he has to struggle pretty much just the same amount for exactly for, for a, a reasonable amount of weight and and as they keep adding like he doesn't even realize that his kid added weight instead of took it off so it's it it it, it doesn't have that same sort of like you know kid discovers he's super strong by lifting yeah. up a car at the age of two or anything so i i appreciated the um actually the performance from bruce willis because it really did look like he was he was straining and struggling and the way that that was slowly built as elijah says have you did have you ever tried to develop it and the answer is no right and this is a good mm-hmm. example of that is he knows he can lift this it was really hard he probably can't lift anymore so he'll stop and he never yeah. tests mm-hmm. himself that's his life that's yeah the, his well life. the self the self-imposed limitation of i live in the real world in the real world you know people with superhuman strength don't exist so when you've reached the top end of what somebody on the football team bench presses well guess what you lift the most on the football team and nobody else can match you. So there's nobody else to compete with and you stop. The yeah. shooting of this entire scene is fantastic. I love <laughs> the kid walking back and forth. I love the lines. <laughs> you think you could have beaten up Bruce Lee? Like, what if you knew karate? Like, that is such a thing. Like, that, you know, you're thinking, who doesn't want to think their dad can beat up Bruce Lee, right? Like, and then the scene where he's like, you know, how much did you take off? And they cut back to them. I just love his delivery on. I lied. Like, like <laughs> it's just so good. And he keeps moving. The kid keeps moving further back as the scene goes, and he puts more weight on. Uh, and I love this. Is the scene that sold me on this movie when I was watching it for the first time. And they sort of, you know, they're sitting there, and there's this brief pause. The kid says, "Let's put more on." And Bruce Willis <laughs> just thinks about it and goes, "Okay, okay." <laughs> like, and it was just that. I just love that because it's the he's starting. He's starting to realize. Something is weird, right? And it's just the the buy in is there, and he's letting his son into his into his world here. He trusts his son to like help him figure this out, which is kind of cool. And his son was obviously with with them when they met with Elijah. Uh, the other thing, and and Lauren brought this up. She said she talked about the framing too, and again, not a subject she spends a lot of time talking about when she sees a movie. But she said very specifically, the shot that got her was the weightlifting shot, yep. where camera in camera out. the camera keeps coming in and out as the as the weights keep going up and down it just it's it is it's yeah it's really good there's there's some we keep talking about hitchcock there's some spielberg flourishes in here too but Mm -hmm. but uh but yeah this is uh i I really like this scene and how his son is like collaborating with him on it you should never do anything like this you know that (laughs) i I love how the kid keeps standing further back he's like stand back i'm not quite sure what would happen about this is dangerous you should stand further back like like in case the weights fly or something and then and then you cut back to him and he's further back he just keeps going back it's amazing but i i I like that i like that spielbergian touch and it's something that you know again i think unfairly maligned uh is people were like oh he's just a crib artist oh he just cribs from spielberg oh he just cribs from hitchcock no he cribs from all of them and the combination of it is entirely centered around his personality and it's why you know i feel like this movie worked uh and and is really one of his best um, is is because there there is that kind of authentic feel to the relationship between father and son, which oh yeah, you know, just getting a kid to perform well is one thing, but building a decent narrative around a kid actor 
and their relationship with parents is entirely another. And the fact that he accomplishes both of those is is utterly fantastic. I just will always remember the paint cans. For some reason, that oh, stuck yeah. with me for so long. It just the those image of the paint cans attached to the dumbbells. Yep. He's just so so neatly uh, attached it with duct tape. And that yep. line yep. too. So good. How much how much weight did you put on all of it? All of it. <laughs> yep. All of it. Elijah needs physical therapy because he fell down all those steps and uh he goes good cut too from right like cuz it's yeah. a contrast from yeah. you know David's lifting 350 pounds and he's in a hospital. And bed. so uh, and then he is in physical therapy and he chooses the place where Rob and Wright works. Because he's a uh, crazy stalker and says, oh, did David never tell you about that? Whoops, I revealed that I know who your husband is. So, And she doesn't uh, walk away at that point, which is the part that freaks me out a little bit. Like, they keep going. She's a carer. Yeah, she is a carer. I, I think she's also protective of David himself. You know, not not just her wanting to try to find a way to make the relationship work, but she she knows that he is hurt and hurting and damaged and, you know, he can't just be taped back together again emotionally. Um, but I, I think part of it might honestly, the character motivation at least, be that she she wants to get as much information out of this guy who, I mean, what's he going to do? Jump out of the chair uh, <laughs> and, and get her? You know, she 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 suddenly goes on an immediate quest of, wait, 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 wait. Uh, I'm going to find out what's going on here and then we're going to yeah. put you in handcuffs and send you away. <laughs> yeah. And then she realizes, oh, maybe this is not as bad of a thing or a bad thing. Or I, uh, uh, well, okay. We'll figure it out. This is also the scene where we find out uh, more about why she doesn't like football, where she explains yeah. to him, you know, she's like, you know, it's the opposite of what I do. And and isn't that a little on the nose? Because if you look in the uh, the newspaper clipping about the car accident, her maiden name is Inverso. Yeah. Is, really? is it really? Yep. Oh, oh, yeah. You look it up. It's there. And I was like, that seems a little. T- <laughs> I'll take it. I'm OK it's- with it. Bruce Willis is bench pressing how many pounds, Moises? <laughs> 500 at last yeah, I checked. Oh, there's some go. paint there cans in there. What do paint cans weigh? But yeah. <laughs> what do paint cans weigh indeed? Like the the, con- the constant reference to inversions and reversals and uh, and symmetry and that sort of a thing. Like throughout, it would, it would get to a point where it would get to the upper level of my tolerance for it. But by the end of the movie, everything balanced out. And I kind of hate him for that because, <laughs> because it ended up working out so well that I... I, you know, I, you know, I really wanted it to bother me enough, but but he he earned enough by the end of the movie that I kind of was like, all right, all right, uh, Ms. Inverso, uh, fine. So our next set of scenes are involve uh, Joseph, the son. Uh, first off, uh, getting in in uh, a, f- a fight at school because he's trying to protect somebody because he wants to be a hero like his dad. And uh, and they have a whole conversation Aww. about it. And then, yeah, it's really sweet. And so the next thing that happens is he gets the gun out and, tr- and threatens his dad to shoot him to prove that he's uh, <laughs> the, to prove that he's a superhero. L- love that scene so much. Also, also, David, David has learned here from the lady at the school that he almost drowned. And so he tells his son, um, you know, I didn't. I, I'm not invulnerable. We got it all wrong. And the son doesn't believe it, which is why he gets the gun. L- absolutely love the scene with the the son not only because i remember it just being like that one of those like armchair gripping oh. scenes in the mm-hmm. theater because you're like oh my god is he gonna shoot him what will happen if he shoots him is he gonna <laughs> yep. die like yep. and and because it is so well diffused with humor 
where they try all these different things to get him to put the gun down, including like, I thought we were becoming <laughs> friends. Friends don't shoot friends, do they, Audrey? Yeah, no, 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 shooting no, friends. no shooting friends. No shooting friends is a line that I remember laughing out loud about in the theater. Yeah. Even as I'm like sort of shaking and like have my hands on the armrest. It's a hell of a way to play out the you know, the, the archetypical son finding out his father is not invincible and immortal sort oh, of, yeah, sort of trope yeah. of, of, you know, coming of age and growing up is, uh, is, you know, the son, the son, uh, has to learn that his father is not immortal and invulnerable by uh, effectively threatening him with a gun. You are about to be in big trouble. That kid is, <laughs> is really smart, right? I mean, it is, it is perfectly logical. How do I prove that my dad is invulnerable because I believe it? The answer is I'll just shoot him and it'll bounce yeah, off. Sh- but he's, and, and Bruce, Willis is like keen to that. He's like, It'll, okay, you shoot me, bullet bounces off, and then I'm out of here. I'm going to leave. I'm leaving. Because yeah. we don't shoot people uh-huh. in this house, which is just- We my, do not shoot friends. Dads are for hugging, not shooting. Yep. My kids and I, my whole family watched this movie last night. And the kids, I was worried that the slow pace was going to get them, although I think it was okay. They were, they were, uh, it was a little slow, but they were a little bit intrigued too. And uh, this scene, they were on edge and you know and then there's the 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 laughter of the release of tension with that friends don't you know shoot other (laughs) friends on all of that but it really it is an incredibly effective scene because what's he gonna do like a kid wouldn't you know normally this kid loves his dad why would he shoot his dad it's because he thinks his dad is a superhero that's why and uh (laughs) it's great it's a great scene. Uh, and, and another thing that I love is that we we never actually get any kind of resolution to this. We we don't know what would happen if he got shot. And jumping forward just a little bit, when you get uh, him telling Mr. Glass that, that this kid threatened to shoot him, I, I love how Samuel L. Jackson is so emphatic <laughs> about, I didn't say he, you could be, you know, could be killed. Like that was, like he's, he's. You can see him. It's flashing before his eyes. Oh, my God. This person who is is about to make my life have meaning almost perhaps got killed by his own kid because I overstepped a little bit. It's it's the same thing. I almost screwed things up with this guy again, I, just in a different way. I should have made him sign a waiver just in case, like releasing <laughs> me from liability. <laughs> like, I, I love the the connection between these two because you, you are you're. You're just like, what if he does get shot? You know, and it's like, what would happen? And then I feel like the the scene where he's looking at the wreckage wraps that up. And it's like, it probably would have bounced off because that is just (laughs) mangled to hell. We get here. There's two scenes where it's uh, Bruce Willis and Robin Wright. uh, They have their date. Um, she comes, she comes in earlier and, and says, you know, could we, could we, you know, I'd like to try again, which is a big, you know, big moment in there, uh, trying to fix their, their marriage. Uh, and they have the date here, which starts out with sort of datey things and then very quickly breaks apart into, uh, more details about their, their marriage and, and, uh, when it fell apart. I, I'm sorry. Whose favorite colors are rust and brown? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Whose favorite color well, is it's, brown? It's, I laughed. It's the muted color palette yep. just like know, put on a plate in front of you. I know. Beautiful painting behind them, though. So, honey, honey, what's your favorite color? Dark, gritty. <laughs> yeah. He, he should have said bright. I like bright green like my poncho. That's what I like. Yeah. Poncho color. Green poncho. There is a beautiful, uh, a beautiful picture behind them on the wall and a nice slow zoom. Yes. I did take uh, take note of this particular scene simply because I felt like this was the first time that I noticed any real color that didn't have to do with Mr. Glass. Right. Um, 
because it's their their first date. He's he, things something is changing in his life, even yes. though it doesn't necessarily go the way he's expecting. But we get that great mural, and they're talking about colors. Just you know, yes, they're they're muted colors. We haven't gotten that yeah. far yet. But this for me was kind of a turning point in the movie because I finally saw something that visually stimulated me in a way that that the film had not too much at this point. So they go home and. Uh the babysitter, and I want to just call out again. <laughs> I love the, the babysitter. babysitter. Has this one scene? The babysitter could be completely generic or not in the movie, but instead, the babysitter is a funny little character. We thanks, Great, for, thanks telling for telling me. me. Thanks yeah. for telling me. God. She's actually she's actually my favorite character in the whole movie. No lie, I swear. She's, I you get her. so much from her, and the, the best part is is that then she goes out and it's pouring rain outside, and she's like, "Oh, great, great." Like, that's her yeah. last. She's but uh, she she he got the job in New York, so there's suddenly extra tension in their relationship because what does that mean? He thought he wouldn't get it, but he got it. And I started to think about like, did they realize that the guy who was the sole survivor of the train crash was the guy they interviewed? And they're like, "Hey, let's get that guy." I, I, oh yeah, that guy's great at I, security. I started to wonder about that so um and then the other call is on the machine and it is uh and it's elijah right so two things that strike me about this one when we find out that david has gotten the job and they're talking about it bruce willis is out of focus again and it's as if he is once again like you know erica just mentioned how he's something is changing in his life and it's as if that almost slips away for a moment here um, mm-hmm. as the possibility of him leaving comes up again. So he's kind of gone blurry again. And then a thing that I, again, I watched this scene twice because I wanted to make sure I was hearing it correctly. Do you notice that Elijah's voice on the answering machine changes? It goes oh, from yeah, being yeah. staticky and modulated to yeah. being a voiceover, and it does it slowly yes. and gradually, but it's really well done. Then David goes to the train yard. This is the this is where that happens, which is he he breaks into the, where the wrecked cars are and looks at the at the smashed up cars and and you just know it's giving him the realization that you know something there's no way he should have survived this thing and and he flashes back to the car crash um, and in the car a too much a little too much slow mo oh the nineties yeah <laughs> so in the in the car crash uh, what we see is that he's he has been ejected from the car but is fine of course. And uh, and she is still in the car, and so he has to get her out. So we also see an example that not only does he, as a as a teenager, he had proof that he was unbreakable, but he rips the door off the car in order to get her out. So there's his super strength. Although yeah, yeah adrenaline makes you do things, but you know we yep. know now it's his super strength that, that is happening here. And then we get that moment where the car pulls up and asks if he's okay, and he's like thinking over what he's going to say. And this is presumably the moment where he decides that he's going to feign an injury so that he never has to play football again. And I was thinking about this too, because you, um, a lot of times there are superhero like characters who are teenagers and they usually come up with a reason why they can't be. Cause like Spider-Man would be the best basketball player or football player or whatever at his high school team, right? Because he's got powers and he doesn't do it. What I like about what David Dunn has in his past is he is famous for being this amazing football player. And then the injury is what stops him from, from you know, going on and, and maybe becoming a professional football player or whatever. But through the now that we know what we know about him, it's like, well, that's why he was a great football player. 
is that he has <laughs> he, he is strong and can't be hurt. So no wonder he is a great football player. And maybe he also has like you know great agility, which we never get to see yeah. in the movie because we he hasn't doesn't go that far. Because uh, when Robin Wright is talking to him later on, saying you know I never would have wished for that accident to stop you from playing football, something to the effect of the things you could do were like nobody else. That makes me think that there's more than just super strength, like the actual abilities beyond that. And some of it with him feigning the injury is also about in some ways. Not quite protecting her, but it has obviously, as we talk about later, you know, when he when um, Elijah mentions that he gave this up for a woman, um, you know, there is there's love there, right? Like there's something he realizes that he can't have that and and be with her. And there is a choice about that, even though it, it doesn't go exactly as he's planned. He talks to Elijah and Elijah says, go where people are like this is where all the way in. And so here we go. We got the big, big. uh uh, scene in with the pillars and the and the there's some fog and the lights are coming down and there's a big clock and we're in the train station um, and there's people buzzing around everywhere and this is that moment where he's going to use his powers and this is also the moment where the pa- color palette is very clear you know essentially we're seeing through his eyes because the idea here is everybody's gray and washed out but the people who are special who he bumps against and gets a flash of some crime they've committed they're all wearing distinctly bright clothing so it's a, it's a it's a nice you know it, I, I wouldn't i wouldn't call it subtle but i really like it that that the people that he bumps into the lady with a red jacket and then we see her in a shiny red outfit uh stealing a stealing jewelry um and then he bumps into the the, what he bumps into the the there's a guy ass- assaulting um people a woman on the with street a bottle. Yep, oh yeah the he's guy wearing bright yellow yeah the bright yellow guy who hits hits people on the street and says to go the back rapist. to yeah and then there's the the rapist uh we see and then there's finally there's Mr. Orange uh janitor who um who is is our uh, person who we're going to be following back to his uh, place where he's committed all the murders the music in this scene is is amazing. I, I got chills. I, oh yeah, I get chills. This whole scene is fantastic. This is just the this is the creme de la creme. This is like the the apex of this movie, right? Where he's like he's bought in now, right? He is believing it, and he stretch. He, he's got that nice shot where he he stretches out his hands as he's standing there, yeah, and lets the crowd wander over him. And you're like, oh, he's in. He's totally in now. And Elijah has warned him that things are going to be messy. Real life is messy. Right, which is important yeah. for later. The two things I noted about this scene were, number one, the music, which, you know, I'm right there with you with the chills. The second thing, it, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how this is this is a very realistic superhero movie. We th- These crimes that he sees these people committing, these are like crimes. These aren't like, oh, like we got the black masks and we're robbing a bank or or, you know, like the typical comic book type crimes. These are like like rape and assault and like major crimes. Crime in the real world. It's not, I'm going to steal yeah. 5,000 pounds of whipped cream. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's, it's exactly like Elijah says on the phone, like this, this is not going to be like the comics. My says David Dunn could bench press that 5,000 pounds of whipped cream. <laughs> <laughs> you just need ba- yeah. two big buckets. How much does 5,000 pounds of whipped cream weigh? 5,000 pounds, Dan. <laughs> 5,000 pounds, <laughs> no, two evenly sized buckets. Yeah, exactly right. You just uh, tape them on there. The, I, I have to say the whole thing 
this again i don't really like scary movies per se and the home invasion stuff Oof. freaked me it's the su- hell it's super out scary yeah, yeah this, this movie turns into a horror movie scary. multiple times the flash on the guy oh, the at the screen, screen door, door right terrifying it's so terrifying, terrifying. Because again, it's like it's your home. You're supposed to be safe there, right? And this is the whole sequence with this as we get there is just eerie as hell and terrifying, and it's so effective. It is so effective. Yeah. And the fact that that as he's seeing all of these flashes, um, like somebody said before, they're getting worse and worse and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And the last one that we see, actually, like on the face of it, what we see. Not that bad. So you know that what happened after that had to have been so much worse. And then as he gets there, you find that out. It's just, yeah, I felt the same yeah, way it's, you did, it's Dan. The, it's the not showing the explicit thing and letting your mind make it a thousand times worse. There is a, a yeah. flash of the father dead on the stairs. Right. Yeah. Right after true. that. But, it's, but yeah. yeah, I still had a, like I, I still had an inkling that it was it was going to be even And it worse. was. And then it was. Yeah, you, you don't get you don't see that exact act. Um, and so you still have that gap in terms of the visual information they give you. So you get to build that out for yourself. Uh, and while that's happening, you're also getting visual information as to, oh, but there are more people and we're going to take you on a tour of 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 absolute abject horror movie sadness for a minute. Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to see what he does. Conveniently, he is already wearing orange for a prison jumpsuit. Yes. <laughs> so Bruce Willis follows him with his hat and his poncho. Green poncho man is on the case. And uh, we f- we follow him following the man. So there's a steady cam shot. We go around a pillar and he's he's taken his uh, trash can back to the employees only. And then he walks. Conveniently, this is not the beginning of his shift. And Bruce Willis doesn't have to stand there for eight hours. <laughs> it is the end of his shift. He's got to put his messenger bag on. And then and through this driving rainstorm. An- another shot I remembered so well, just like him walking back and forth behind the glass. And like, again, now, I haven't seen this in 10 years. I knew exactly how that scene plays out. And and he follows him, you know, in his poncho. And th- this guy is just walking in his in his coveralls through the rain. Bruce Wallace follows him sees him go up to the front door of the house and then go around the side and there's this this moment of okay i gotta do this and bruce willis takes in the mail yep and bruce willis enters the house and discovers uh very you know very quietly he finds the the body of the father well even even before the body like he opens the door and it's immediately like there's the pile of mail on the yeah. floor there's it's garbage like the mess there's like signs of a struggle it's like like the instant he opens the door it's confirmed that yep this is exactly what it said on the tin yeah and and there's something i think what sets me most on edge and makes me the most anxious about this entire sequence is there is something, even though this this house has already been invaded, there is something transgressive about being in someone else's house yes. without their permission. Yep. And it just, yep. it makes me deeply uncomfortable and anxious because the whole feeling is, even though it's just, you feel like you're worried about getting caught. Like the whole thing, even like the, the person in this house is a bad guy and that's a whole extra level of being worried about being caught. The fact that it's set in someone else's house, just like it, just the stakes are so up there and it puts me on the edge of my seat the whole time. So he goes upstairs and uh, goes into the bedroom and then goes into the bathroom and finds the two girls tied up. And that door swings open and you see again, you see the silhouette with the hood and the poncho hanging down. And what strikes me about this every time is the silence. Like they don't talk. They never say anything. 
They don't they don't scream. They don't cry. They say nothing. And he he, you know, it's he unties them and we see the whole thing. It's one continuous shot of him untying both of them. And then he he tells them to shush, uh, to be quiet. And the and the thing about untying them is like up until this point, he's very deliberate. He's like walking through the house slowly. He's taking it all in. But when he sees them tied up and he starts to untie them, it's like it's rushed and it's panicky. frantic and yeah. it's, it's panicky. Yeah. And he fumbles with that first, you know, that first knot forever. Like he's taking forever on oh, that yeah. knot because because he's just like those fingers are going left and right. And he's like, like you, you can feel the panic overflowing in his mind. Yeah. And then he starts to slowly take control over it. Like once he gets that first knot out, he's like, okay, I'm here. I'm doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm helping these people. And then he starts to slowly get control of it again. But just again, so much is conveyed without a word. So much is conveyed just by what we see and just so much subtlety. And it's just, it's wonderful. Yeah. The, the emotional fear that gets transferred to us as the audience is just absolutely uh, incalculable. Uh, it, it, it sets me on edge each time I've seen it. Um, and we're discovering all of this stuff along with him as he's making his way through the house. And that sense, um, that, that was, uh, that was just mentioned of being in someone else's house and how just objectively wrong it feels, uh, you know, there is there is an intrusion happening, even if in the case of our uh, audience surrogate here, we're doing it for the right reason and to do a good thing. But that level of of it feeling wrong and then on top of that, not knowing what's going to be through the next doorway or, you know, whether something's going to come through another doorway is like having all of the most tense parts of a really good well-made slasher film thrown into one climactic sequence of the movie. Yep. So he goes to the next room and in this is the master bedroom and we see this scene through flapping curtains. Curtains. Mm. That's such a good shot. It's back to it the is. it's back to the train seats at the very beginning because yeah. it's framed we see one we see the other and I don't know I'm never sure is she dead in this scene already? Yeah, cuz he motions at her to be quiet. Yeah, but she never moves. She never moves, I agree, but it's creepy that he does that. Like, you know, there's something off-putting and eerie about that, but it's so beautifully shot. Yeah, and he goes out onto the onto the porch, but Mr. Orange Jumpsuit comes up behind him. Jump scare. Sh- shoves him over. Yeah, we see him. We, we, we cut back and we can see him through the translucent curtains, and he comes back and pushes him over, uh, dropping him into the center of the swimming pool cover. Oh, no! Oh. Water! It's your kryptonite! No! And per- and Mr. Green Poncho Man begins to fall, sink into the it's swimming pool. It's a callback to uh, Elijah falling down the stairs and the shot of him getting enveloped by the tarp is just wonderful even without the water factor i uh, i found this so the idea of falling onto a tarp and then slowly like knowing that you are about yeah. to go underwater and basically die as the I edges mean, just even, keep pulling away mm-hmm. slowly yeah oh, that was uh, so the, effective the 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 pool cover strikes me on so many levels as such a masterful choice because you know like you've got this you've got this person who's supposedly invulnerable you've established that their weakness is water something that to most people and and certainly almost everyone in the audience is just like like water is fun water is like you go swimming in the pool and it's great you know like so how do you how do you convey to the audience 
that this thing that so many people, you know, enjoy and take for granted and, and do not see as any kind of real threat, like, how do you convey that, that sense of dread and danger and destruction for this character in the movie? And the tarp just does it so well, because like you said, you know, he falls on that tarp and then he twists and it wraps around him and like it it just rams all of those feelings home that that crushing smothering feeling it's like a and shroud it's like mm-hmm. a shroud yeah it's like the shroud of death is literally being wrapped around him and it's like whoever like i don't know who thought of that like the the I, i'm sure it was m night Shyamalan who thought of it but like whoever thought of like the pool cover and the wrapping around and like it's such a fantastic metaphor. It's such a fantastic visual. It it works on so many levels and it turns what could have been such a huge misstep for like water, water's his his nemesis. Like, no, it it sells it completely. And it's like you never at one point was I like, oh, it's just water. He should be fine, right? No, it's like, oh my God. They've earned it. Yeah. He is saved by the two girls that he saved earlier, they pull him, they give, put, stick like a pool uh, net or something in there, like the stick of a, of a pool sweep. Uh, the skimmer. Skimmer, There's exactly. Skimmer. And, yeah. he, and, and, and uh, that is what gets him out. So they save him Instant again karma. silently. They say mm-hmm. we've got an exact inverse here again, right? The reversal. He saved them, <laughs> they save him. He now comes up behind the orange Killer. jumpsuit guy. Yeah. Right, just as that guy came up before him, and whereas he threw him into his secret weakness of water, he puts him in his secret weakness of a headlock that cuts off all his oxygen. Yep. <laughs> Was that a secret? Secret weakness! <laughs> that is also my secret weakness, is sleeper holds. <laughs> Don't tell everybody! Yeah. yeah. I love this scene. It, it is... Erica will not be surprised, because she knows that I, I talk about this a lot. I like the fact that it's dark and ugly and painful, <laughs> because I feel like, you know what... If you're going to have the climax of your movie be that you stop a guy who has killed a husband and wife and chained and and tied up their daughters and is just a monster, the way you do that is you know you should probably depict it as as awful as it is and not make it sort of easy and simple. Mm-hmm. And this is this movie I am I am nervous the whole time he's in that house. You're absolutely right. Oh, it yeah. feels transgressive. I'm worried about him when he's on that swimming pool uh cover and Ugh. and in this moment too it's like this is his confrontation with the bad guy and it's and all he really has is his his invulnerability and his perseverance because he just has to ride it out as that guy is trying to not be stopped and uh and I like it because of that. It's not easy. It's not fun really but it's so good that it's like yes this is this is what you have to do to solve this terrible thing that happened and so we go through it another call out to the music in this scene which is the other fantastic musical cue in this entire movie as it just comes up and there's this it's beautiful beautiful work by james newton howard here yeah and and the last the lakota here of course is that we didn't know for sure about the woman strapped to the uh, radiator but he unties mm-hmm. her and she just flops over and we learn in the newspaper clipping the next day that she's she is dead and so you know that that's the last thing we see of this great victory of his does it feel like a victory two people died who knows what happened to the two girls who were chained up um it's awful right and so that the last feeling we get left with is not entirely you know there will be some glee in the morning that he's the hero but in the aftermath of this it's not like they're high fives and stuff right it's just yeah. awful right it's an right. awful thing he hangs the poncho up at home 
Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Carries Robin right up the stairs. In the end, he lays down next to her, and he is he, he is looking for solace. He's seen some terrible stuff tonight, right? And he says, I had a nightmare, which is the thing that he didn't tell her before mm-hmm. that he said was the 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 point where he thought that they were not going to make it. And and so he says it here. So we get a, some kind of closure of him needing that support, and we know what he's what nightmare he saw. He did have a nightmare tonight. The, the nightmare line works on so many levels. Like, it could be the nightmare of that night. It could be the nightmare of the problems they've been having in their marriage. Yep. It could be the nightmare of the train wreck. Like, it, it works on so many levels. I'm such a Depression, sucker for that yeah. line. Yeah. It could be the nightmare of of not of his entire life, not realizing right. what he right. was and what he was supposed to right. be yeah. doing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The next scene is the next morning. This scene brought to you by Tropicana Orange Juice, by the way. (laughs) Yep, very clearly. Prominently displayed. My son actually said, Tropicana. I said, yep, yep, yep. I love this scene, though, because of the, uh, you know, we very deliberately, he's drinking his orange juice and like, what is happening here? And you hear the newspaper being slid across the table and you see the edge (laughs) of it. And then he he says, you should look at it. And he very carefully looks at it. And it's the, it's the, uh, an artist, a police sketch of Poncho Man. <laughs> and the hero, in quotes, rescues two children, parents found dead in house. So it's not entirely a win. And his son, with tears in his eyes, looks up, up at him and he just does the little nod. The slight nod uh-huh. kills me. And then the and little, says, you yeah, were right. Holds up the finger. Silently, yep, he says, you the- were right. And then puts up the finger to be like, and don't tell to, your mom. You know, quiet, because he's now got a secret identity now. And that's like his son is the only one who's in on it. It's just it's just a great that whole thing, the, the wordless the whole thing is with good. the son and the father and his son is crying and the tears are coming down. And Bruce Willis, do you know, Full that credit to Bruce oh Willis my. here. That is amazing mm-hmm. piece of work with so very little last scene and most controversial. Uh, Bruce Willis, uh, he talks, talks. We see finally again, we see Elijah's mom. I, I love the fact that she's wearing purple eyeshadow yep. Yep. and there's purple trim on her, on her clothing. Yep. And it's like, it's very clear at that point that like, regardless of what has happened or what will happen, like she is firmly on his side. Like she's complicit. She is part of his supervillain team. And I, I just love that, that like hammered home tie in with the, with with that color choice in the there. same way that she told us that there was a surprise ending she now tells us you know this my son always told me there are two types of villain the soldier yes. villain who fights yep. with his his you know his, his uh, muscles brawn, yep. his muscles and the real threat the brilliant and evil arch enemy who fights him with his brain yep and like there it is and if you don't again it's laid out for you if you're ready for it <laughs> Uh, so the last scene uh, continues with in the back, they, Elijah talks to him, um, you know, sees the newspaper and then says we should shake hands, which is Elijah saying, I know what you can do. So you're going to touch my hand now and you're going to see what I did. And then we it is revealed in the in the flashes that Bruce Willis gets that these uh, these horrible things that have happened that Elijah has cited previously in the movie of of terrible things happened looking to see if there was one survivor the airplane crash the hotel fire are things that and the and the train crash that that starts the movie these are uh these are things that elijah caused to happen in his quest to find 
his counterpart at the other end of the bell curve, the unbreakable person, to be the, his his nemesis of the breakable person, and that all happens in the uh, in the handshake. He's 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 outing himself to Bruce Willis and saying, "Yes, now you know we are opposites, and I am your arch uh, nemesis." But to set it up as though it's a congratulations are in order. You've become a hero. Yeah. Let's shake hands. We've done this together. And then the rug gets pulled out from under you. It is uh I just heartbreaking and yet it is it is perfect and amazing because of course he is he has turned himself into a villain just to become the you know, find the thing that he was looking for and find his opposite and and it is oh it's perfect. It is for me it is the perfect bow tied on top of this movie i love this scene i love this scene so much and everything he says about like i it's usually like these plaintive cries as as bruce willis is walking away coming to terms with what he's done and the line that always sticks with me is like most of the time they're friends like you and me we're friends and it's just oh it gets me well i mean yeah class like classing it in man with a thousand faces hero with a thousand faces kind of terminology I love the notion of shifting the conflict from man against self to uh, man against man and flipping the guide into into the the opposing force. Mm-hmm. Um, that that dynamic is something that still to me works and people complain, oh, well, isn't it coincidental that uh, he's the one who caused the train wreck and that's the thing? Well, yeah, it, it shows that he mass killed a bunch of other people doing yeah. other stuff. That's yeah. why that's in there. That's why it's there. He was just going to keep playing the odds until he came up with somebody who ended up being his inverse. And he is just so happy about this. And yes, he is criminally insane. And that is why he would do something like that. Well, and what I like about this ending is that Elijah, you know, I think some people don't like this because they view it as as uh, first off as a uh, uh, M. Night Shyamalan twist where it's like, well, you know, it is pretty clear where we're where we're going here. The details of him committing all these crimes are are uh, a little bit surprising because you kind of want to be on Samuel L. Jackson's side. But the way I read it is he's. Uh, he's he's a crazy person and he's so deep down in this mythology that he will do anything because he's committed to finding his opposite. So it's not like the movie saying, surprise, he was a supervillain all along. From another level up, if you look down at it, he has turned himself into a monster because he's become so obsessed with this idea of the diamet- diametrically opposed force. So I like... I read it at that level, and that's why I'm totally okay with it. It's like it's not just like a comic book thing where there's a villain and and a and a hero. It's like Elijah's desperation to find a purpose in life and why he is the way he is leads him down this sad path and commits these horrible crimes because he believes the only way he can define himself is by finding his opposite number. And so, yeah, he is the supervillain in this story, but he's not the supervillain because, of course, there's a supervillain. He makes himself the supervillain. And he is kind of the hero of his own story in a villainous way, but it's also not a surprise because, as we've talked about since most of us watched this before, it's earned. All the stuff that they talk about with when you're watching it a second time and you know what's happening at the end, it's not it's not subtle, right? Like there's a lot there's nothing in there that makes you go like, "Oh, this comes out of left field." No, it is earned, it is laid out, it makes sense. And even if it feels like the rug has been pulled under out from under you, 
I think that's okay because you're supposed to feel kind of betrayed here at the end. You're supposed to feel upset that this person you've kind of rooted for is is villainous because that is how Bruce Willis's character is feeling. But it, it, it works because it's earned and it's set up and all of that stuff is is laid out for you to get you to this point. Yeah, and, and the motivations are solid. You know, like if you think about what Elijah's been through in his life and his quest and his desire to fit in to to know what his place is like it all like you can you can see why he did what he did and you can it's totally believable as motivation and again it it goes back to the realism it goes back to the it's it's so close you can reach out and touch it because you can see someone going down that path also the performance uh samuel l jackson's performance really fits in with that reading of it because from the beginning from the first time that we you know we see him as an adult he's kind of he's kind of a a, a petulant a, a petulant child in a way you know just the way that he deals uh-huh. with the the guy who's trying to buy the art and then he really comes off as as just this sort of hopeful lost puppy kind of guy he is he is so grasping towards this i the, this idea that bruce willis could could possibly be this kind of person that as we said before he almost screws it up because he's he's too eager like on a first date and and all the way through he has that sort of just it it's not overplayed so that it's obnoxious or annoying but it is there in his performance so at the end when we get that really plaintive and they're friends just like we are it is it's a perfect culmination to the entire performance that he's put together throughout this whole film yep he's so happy at the end yes like this is the end of his journey as he has find he has found meaning and we we see that big smile and it freeze frames and we get the text Elijah Price is now in an institution for the criminally insane which <laughs> yep. of course is yeah. where you send super <laughs> that's where you send supervillains but I love that moment of like the the juxtaposition there of like he is finally happy because I mean and this is the we mentioned this earlier like the whole question of like Bruce Willis and feeling like waking up sad and feeling like his his life is wrong and there's something wrong with it and he's found a place. Uh, and a role this same day he has found that and Elijah's found his place too uh, so he has taken that journey but in the end he's a crazy person who killed a lot of people and got convicted of three acts of terrorism and is in the uh, institution for the criminally insane now but at the, the fact is he smi- there's a smile on his face at the end of the movie so for years now uh, M. Night Shyamalan has talking about because Unbreakable uh, you know I, it was not the big hit that the Sixth Sense was and then like Signs was a big hit so I think it was generally thought like, well, that one was kind of a misfire. I, I would like to believe that over the years it has become uh, more appreciated, especially, uh, you know, as, just as time has gone by and maybe it's become kind of a cult classic. But Shyamalan's al- always kept thinking of it and uh, has threatened from time to time. And there's always the stories about where Bruce Willis says, yeah, I talk to him about it every few years and we maybe we'll do it someday. And, and that's all. There may be some news on that, but we're going to say that for the very end. Before we do that, I wanted to go around one last time and ask for overall final impressions of unbreakable how uh how did it how did it hold up and uh do, did you did you like it did you love it uh erica you you can you summarize sort of where you fall on this i have really mixed feelings about it because when i think about the idea of this film when i think about the direction of it the performances all of the pieces are things that i really like and i've enjoyed talking about it and breaking it down and i do think that this is a really good movie i just 
wasn't as entertained by it as I wanted to be. So I think I think this is for me is a movie that is is better sort of remembered <laughs> that I can remember the good parts, but but the actual sitting through it was not a particularly entertaining or pleasurable experience. I mean, at the end, my very last note is, eh, it's fine. Like, that's exactly what I wrote when I finished <laughs> when I finished watching it. But then talking about it here, I can I can point to all of these things that I thought were really well done. Um, so I think I just won't watch it again. If I'm if I if I feel like I need to re-experience this movie, I'm just going to come back and listen to this podcast. <laughs> Fair enough. Moises? In a world where uh, we've got so much superhero content out there from TV to the movies, and I consume so, so much of that stuff. Rewatching this movie 17 years later is this massive, massive breath of fresh air, as if I have not had this kind of fresh air in 17 years. This movie, you've got him ripping the door off of a car in a practical effect that has weight, has feeling to it, and doesn't doesn't feel silly. Yes, it's Bruce Willis can bench press 500 pounds, and that's the last time I'm using the joke. Um, it, it has that level of uh, suspension of disbelief to it, but it works. And we've seen so many attempts to do grounded, gritty, street-level superheroes. Um, but honestly, 17 years ago, it was M. Night Shyamalan doing white Luke Cage um, <laughs> and managing to pull it off. I think it's not necessarily going to be the thing that people, even people who love the movie, like Jason, are going to come back to it more than once every five years. Yeah. But it, it it definitely deserves critical reappraisal and popular reappraisal. I love this universe. I love this world. Uh, you know, I I think that um, you know, without saying anything about about the movie itself, if people go back and like this movie, uh, his new movie Split is very very good. And if you have found yourself disenchanted with a bunch of his stuff of late, I would urge you, urge you, urge you to go watch Split and not talk to anybody about it in advance. Just know that James McAvoy's in it and it's very well done. Uh, Justin, final thoughts about Unbreakable? I I adore this movie. Uh, you know, like Moises said, it's a breath of fresh air um, compared to what else is out there right now as far as comic books, uh, comic book movies, comic book TV shows. The pacing, the deliberateness, like, and, and it's just, it's such a masterful piece of work from a technical standpoint, from the cinematography to the framing, to the music, to, uh, to the audio, to the character development, you know, like, like there are so many scenes in this movie that should be required viewing for people who are writing characters or people who are making films, you know, like the secretary and the babysitter, like you you want to talk about character development, just watch those two scenes. Like you don't even need the context of the movie. Just those scenes in isolation are so powerful and so well done. And, and the shot, you know, of him in the hospital, like I could go on, we just talked about it all, but it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> and, you know, it's by no means flawless. Like there are parts of it that, you know, could be done better or, you know, could be edited a little bit, you know, differently, but overall it's such a wonderful, wonderful piece of work that it, it just makes me long for more variety and more deliberateness and more, you know, varied pacing in what we have to to choose from today that it, it actually watching it, you know, kind of makes me sad that we don't have more variety as far as, you know, everything that this film has to offer. It's just like, there's nothing else out there. Like I haven't seen Split yet, but you know, I'm I'm going to go watch that. And I hope that, 
you know, it's a little, it's another breath of fresh air 17 years later. Dan? Maybe I'm on the exact opposite end of the spectrum from Erica. Uh, <laughs> what? Oh, no. <laughs> We're exactly the same except on the other end of the spectrum. Um, but I, there is something deep and visceral in me that I love about this movie. And it just, the fact that it can evoke feelings in me that are, are you know unconscious reactions like the goosebumps i think we all talked about in that scene in the train station like that's not easy that is not a thing that most movies can pull off it is exceptionally hard and it's something that even you know good filmmakers who make otherwise technical solid films sometimes it just doesn't hit you that way and it doesn't hit that way for everybody as we've seen but for me, for whatever reason, this movie just hits me right in the sweet spot. And I, and you know, again, I don't like you, Jason. I, I have, I don't watch it regularly. I hadn't seen it in a long time. You know, I, I love this movie, and it is just so well done. And I think so much of that, I guess, I can lay at the feet of going in totally unknowing of mm-hmm. what I was in for, and and it is is increasingly hard to do that. And I, and I love a lot of the movies that we get today, and I watch so many of the superhero movies that we get today, and I enjoy many of them. Um, you know, and this movie is not flawless, as Justin said. There are, there are definitely some spots that, that need a little tweaking. There are things that are a little bit awkward, but overall, it is something that is so well done and so tonally consistent throughout. Yeah. That yeah, I mean, just, you, you that forgive so it. Hard. You forgive it its flaws. Yeah. It's so hard to pull that off. It is so very hard to pull that off. And and everything, you know, like Justin said, from the music to uh, every, you know, the technical aspects are well done. Um, you know, I think Moises had some great points about how this was a breath of, breath of fresh air in terms of so much of what we had seen then and what we're seeing now. But I, I guess it just comes down to, me, for me, being something that I totally buy into. I am in this moment uh, of the movie from almost from the get-go. Uh, and, and that is just is so hard to accomplish. It's a rare thing. And I agree that this deserves another look for people who are not uh, didn't see it when it came out or, or don't really know much about it beyond M. Night Shyamalan, but is the movie that convinced me that he is a he is a very talented director, even if he is not always making movies that that work for all these reasons. This this shows the heights of what he can accomplish. And, you know, any director should feel lucky if they manage to pull this off once or twice in their career, uh, much less anything more than that. All right. Well, I love it, too. Uh, I have loved it since the first time I saw it. And uh, again, every every few years I will watch it again. And re- I'm reminded of all the reasons that I love it and thinking about it in terms of today's modern superhero movies, which I would I would say, you know, it's I, I think that that gap between, as Moises pointed out, Batman and Robin and the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, you could really see that as the gap between not really knowing what the hell to do with superhero movies and figuring it out again. Um, and I like a lot of those superhero movies today, but they are all summer action tentpole movies with big special effects and explosions and things. And although those are fun, mm. one of the things I like about Unbreakable is that it's dealing it's it's dealing in the same ideas, but from a very different place. And without as mu- yeah. as fun as those explosions and people flying around are, it's also fun to see it so grounded as it is here. And uh, and so. You know, for for many reasons, it's worth it. If you haven't, if you've listened to this, you haven't seen it in a long time, you should uh, go back and watch it because I think it is yeah. a uh, hit, little hidden classic 
that uh, that uh, just got lost because it was not the success that the big uh, twist ending Sixth Sense movie was, which was a phenomenon, and this was not. All right, well, that's we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, thank you to my panel, Dan Morin, Erica Ensign, Justin Michael, Moises Chuyan. Thank you to you, the listener, for listening to this episode. Uh, it was fun. I've been meaning to do this since we started the podcast, quite frankly, and we finally got to it. It only took 340-some episodes, but we did it. Uh, and uh, we'll be back next week with another one about some other topic who knows what but until then thank you and goodbye One last note, and I'm going to uh, blow off the little minor spoiler horn here for something that is a tag at the end of the new movie Split. If you would, if you want to go in completely blank, as Moises, I believe, recommends you do. Yes. I promise you, you'll be so much happier. Don't listen to this last part, but we will just say this, which is Split, it turns out, is related to Unbreakable and has a cameo at the very, very end by a character from Unbreakable. And Split, which has gotten good reviews and good box office, that success suggests that maybe the time is ripe for M. Night Shyamalan to make that proper follow-up of Unbreakable at last. He has said that the, the, the fact that Split and Unbreakable being with two different studios is not an impediment to going forward with a full, proper sequel to Unbreakable. And I believe he says he's writing something now. So that's cool. Yeah. That's good. Good. I'm angry because I don't want to watch Split, but now I feel like <laughs> you've got when to, I saw this, You have got to. I've seen this a few weeks ago. I saw this story and I was like, well, what, what are they talking It was in a headline on some site and it was kind of vague. And I was like, all right, well, I'll check this out. And then I started reading and was like, wait, what? What? Yeah. What is happening right now? I, I don't even want to, I don't even want to spoil you, Dan. Like, even though you know the main spoiler itself, I don't want to spoil you on on how that is introduced because it's a particular aspect of Unbreakable that I know you in particular love <laughs> deeply. And and will even yeah. though you know the spoiler, you will go in there, you will watch Split, and this thing will happen, and, and Dan Morn will be sitting in a movie theater laughing, cackling with delight. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, so we'll just we'll just leave it at that. We could go into more detail. I don't think it's worth it just to say that there is a there is a reference that is made in some fashion and you see somebody who you might find familiar and that's the realization jason let's just tell them it's it's the secretary from the school yeah that, <laughs> no, the babysitter the babysitter oh, to be the babysitter. is all grown up the babysitter all grown up yeah yep. yes. everybody's yeah the babysitter yeah she's she's come back uh you know she was off earth fighting the aliens from signs yeah that's right <laughs> why did none of you Whoa. tell me that they left yeah